Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Hi, my name is Julie Stockton, and I'm an attorney in Littler's San Francisco office. I partner with my clients to prevent sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination in the workplace, and I also litigate on their behalf on these and many related employment law issues. And hi, my name is Courtney Chambers, and I also am an attorney in Littler's San Francisco office. I, too, work with clients on workplace discrimination and harassment issues, as well as defend such lawsuits on their behalf on an individual and class-wide basis. We want to thank you for joining us today. This is the first of a series of podcasts to address gender identity and sexual orientation issues in the workplace. Today, we are going to discuss protections under Title VII. Specifically, we'll review the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision of three cases, which is referred to as Bostock versus Clayton, that recognize the protections afforded under Title VII to protect individuals on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. This decision clarifies a circuit split and carries with it important ramifications for employers operating in states that did not previously protect employees on this basis. During this podcast, We'll review the newly recognized protections, discuss the highlights of the Bostock decision, and outline next steps for employers. So to kick off the discussion, let's just go over some of the basic concepts that we'll be talking about. So Courtney, can you just provide a quick overview of Title VII and what it is? Yes, of course. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is a federal law that protects employees against discrimination in the workplace based on certain specified characteristics that include race, color, national origin, sex, and religion. This means that an employer cannot fire, hire, discipline, promote, or take any other employment action because of these characteristics. So while these characteristics seem self-explanatory, their application, particularly the characteristic of sex, has frequently been litigated, as we will discuss further with this recent Supreme Court case that we are discussing here. And I would add that there are some states that have also enacted their own state laws that afford protections for even a broader range of categories. But today, and for the purpose of this podcast, our discussion is going to be exclusively focused on Title VII. Thanks, Julie. And before we dig into this recent Supreme Court case that we're discussing here, let's review what the recognized protection of sex means. Um, When the U.S. Supreme Court published its opinion resolving these three cases, Zarda versus Altitude Express, Bostack versus Clayton County, and EEOC versus Harris Funeral Homes, The question for the court was whether Title VII's prohibition of discrimination in the workplace because of sex encompassed discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender identity. So, Julie, can you discuss for us what the court means when it refers to sexual orientation? Yeah, so I think that most of us already have a concept of what the term sexual orientation means. It generally refers to a person's sexual identity, sexual preference such as heterosexual, homosexual. For example, in the decision, the U.S. Supreme Court referenced homosexuality and heterosexuality as part of sexual orientation. At issue in two of the cases before the court was the termination of male employees for their sexual orientation as gay men. 
However, the term sexual orientation is broader. Sexual orientation also encompasses identities of bisexual, asexual, and many more. And so at the end of the day, it's important to keep in mind that the opinion is affording employment protection for all individuals, regardless of their sexual orientation or sexual preference, and that it's broader than simply thinking that it's only encompassing gay employees. Great. Thanks, Julie. And can you describe also what the court means when it refers to the term transgender? Yeah, so transgender, there's a little more for us to discuss, but I think a lot of employers are still grappling with what the term transgender means. So first, let's focus on how it was used in the opinion. So the majority opinion focused on the term transgender, which is a type of gender identity. In the case before the Supreme Court, in the EEOC versus Harris Funeral Homes, the plaintiff, Amy Stevens, had been assigned the sex of male at birth. However, her gender expression was female. And as an adult, Ms. Stevens came out at work by informing her employer of her sex reassignment surgery and stating that she would be coming to work dressed and appearing as a female. And then her employment was terminated two weeks later. The Supreme Court held that an employee cannot be terminated for being transgender, as in the case of Ms. Stevens. But many are interpreting this holding to encompass protections for all gender identities. So that would protect transgender individuals who have had sex reassignment surgery, like, as well as those who do not undergo sex reassignment surgery, as well as individuals who dress, act, and express themselves in a gender that's different from their assigned sex. So that would include employees who are gender non-binary, which means that they don't present as either male or female. And so as we look ahead to think about how to apply this decision in the workplace, our understanding of these different concepts, such as transgender and gender identity, are evolving as the rights for the LGBTQA plus community evolves as well. Thanks, Julie, for ex explaining those terms. So, now turning to the recent decision by the Supreme Court that we're discussing here, like you said, this decision was issued to resolve a circuit split. The court considered three cases when it issued this ruling. Julie, can you walk us through the arguments made by the employees before the court? Definitely. And so the way that case came in front of the court and the main issues that were raised by the employees that were before the court, they raised these main points. So Mr. Zarda and Mr. Clayton, they made arguments first that sex is inherent in sexual orientation and that one cannot be considered without the other. They also made the argument that discrimination based on sexual orientation constitutes associational sex discrimination. In other words, it's discrimination on the basis of an employee's association with another person of the same sex. Then Ms. Stevens argued that sex was the but-for cause of her termination. In other words, that Harris Funeral Homes would not have fired her for living openly as a woman if she had been assigned female at birth. And then all of the employees made the argument that discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender identity constitutes impermissible sex stereotyping under Pricewaterhouse versus Hopkins, which is a prior decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. In other words, they made the argument that they were fired because they failed to conform to their employer's sex-based generalizations, where men should only be attracted to women or vice versa, 
or people are assigned a sex at birth and they will identify, act, dress, and appear as that sex throughout the entirety of their lives. Okay, and so what were the primary arguments made by the employers in their defense of the actions they took? So the employers made a variety of arguments, including arguing that the fired employees, if they had been asked, they wouldn't say that they were fired because of their sex, that they would say they were fired because of their gender identity as transgender or because of their sexual orientation. And they also argued that the original meaning of sex under Title VII was male and female, not sexual orientation or transgender status. They also made the argument that Title VII prohibits an employer from treating one sex less favorably than another. And here, the employers were arguing that they would have terminated both men and women equally for being homosexual or transgender. And they further argued that Congress could have passed laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender gender identity if Congress had intended to afford protections for those characteristics. Okay, so based on these arguments from both the employees and the employers, how did the Supreme Court reach its conclusion where it held, quote, it is impossible to discriminate against a person for being homosexual or transgender without discriminating against that individual based on sex, end quote. Yeah, so the court rejected the argument that the protections for sex under Title VII are limited to the biological distinctions between men and women. The court looked to the text of Title VII and focused on the because of language to find that this term broadens the protections beyond actions taken based on biological sex. So, in other words, the because of sex language in Title VII was found to encompass actions taken by employers against employees who display attributes that the employer would tolerate if they were exhibited by an individual of the other sex. The court explained that an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions that it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. And so based on this rationale, the court held, quote, an employer violates Title VII when it intentionally fires an individual employee based in part on sex. And so, Courtney, maybe you could help us understand the legal test that the court articulated in its opinion. Yeah, so the court clarified the legal test, an applicable standard for determining whether an employer um, discriminates an employee based on sex. So what that was is, according to the court, causation between an employer's act and unlawful discriminatory motive is established whenever a certain outcome would not have happened but for that purported cause. So in other words, an employer cannot avoid liability simply by citing some other factor that might have contributed to the employment decision. So as long as the plaintiff's sex or the employee's sex and that term and everything that is now covered under that characteristic, such as sexual orientation, transgender, was one but for cause of that employment decision, that's enough to trigger a violation of the law. So again, an employer can't escape liability just by citing some other factor um, that contributed to their decision to say hire or fire or promote someone. 
if that decision would not have been made but for that person's sex. And again, the court went on to to discuss that an employer who intentionally fires an individual homosexual or transgender in part because of that person's sex or because they are transgender violates the law, even if the employer was willing to subject all male and female homosexual transgender employees to the same rule. So the court really went on to, to clarify and extend that the term sex is not just based on male and female biological distinctions and that it's a but-for cause, that if the characteristic of sex was a factor at all, then there is liability under the law. Thanks, Courtney. That's helpful to understand the way the standard is being interpreted by the court while employers start to think about how to apply this decision in the workplace and what types of protections it is now affording and how the term because of sex has been greatly expanded by this decision. And I think it really comes down to now the, the main question of the day, which is what now for employers? What do employers do with this information and how are they supposed to integrate this to go forward? So I think it's important to note that for some employers who've been operating in states that have already had state protections for sexual orientation and transgender, gender identity expression, this decision doesn't necessarily change their legal landscape that dramatically. However, for employers operating in the 27 states that did not have any state law protections for private individuals on the basis of their sexual orientation and gender identity, action is now required to ensure that they're complying with this decision. And so what steps, Julie, can we tell employers that they should start to take now that this Supreme Court ruling is decided? Yeah, so I think there are really three initial next steps in light of this decision for employers. The first is employers should review their employee handbook to ensure that it complies with the Supreme Court's ruling. Employers should also consider revising their training programs to also ensure that it's in compliance with this expanded understanding of what the term sex means. And then lastly, they should consider whether or not it's necessary to provide additional training and education to their employees on the topics of sexual orientation and gender identity to establish a base understanding and awareness of these issues. The understanding and acknowledgement of these different issues in the workplace really vary from employer to employer and state to state. Great. Thanks, Julie. And so that concludes our podcast on this recent very important uh, Supreme Court decision for all employers nationwide. Um, We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. As always, you're welcome to reach out to either Julie Stockton or myself, Courtney Chambers, as well as at the email podcast at littler.com. If you should have any questions, we would be happy to uh, speak with you at any time. In addition, we'll also host a second podcast in this series to review in detail how HR can navigate benefits issues related to recognizing different gender identities and sexual orientations in the workplace. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to uh, speaking to you again soon in the next episode. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. 
It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.